Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Uh, I like the pretext that pretends that we haven't been talking right until we say, hey, buddy. <laughs> We've had an amazing conversation this morning. Um, so let's, uh, we, because we had a kind of split two-part series over the last two episodes, we didn't uh, rehearse our three tenets in episode 20. So our three tenets are um, sacred cows make great barbecue, let your flag fly proudly, and bros before politicos. Always. Hey, um, I really like the idea for today's episode. That's why our third tenet is so important. Yep. Yeah, I don't know that we've done this so far. I don't think so. So what I proposed we do is I've got a question that has been kind of bubbling up for me low these many episodes that um, uh, I'm going to put out there and I'm going to hold your feet to the fire, but please don't change your mind or please don't, and please don't assume that it's my goal to uh, trap you anywhere. I just, I want to go after this one Great. Element. Is that cool? That is very cool. And you do the same to me. I trust you implicitly. That's a shame. <laughs> okay. Um, you have said on at several points throughout the these episodes, and also I've heard you say it um, in other settings, that your libertarianism, your free market libertarianism, or classical liberal uh, viewpoint is um, in some ways a view knit to your Christianity insofar as you believe that when you are free and you experience the real um, opportunity of liberty as, for example, described within the Constitution, narrowly construed, that uh, this, gives, this affords you the best opportunity to live a Christian life to its, floor, to its fullest. That's right. Have I missed anything? Mm-mm. On a first analysis, a first pass analysis of that statement, uh, I know you to be a person who is n- oftentimes unhappy with consequential arguments, right? Mere, that, mere consequential. Mere cons- yeah. consequential arguments. So is that not a consequential argument? And, and if it is, are there other principles that play into that point of view other than it's just of of proper utility for my for my christianity that's the end of your question phase one a phase one okay yeah that's a great great question so let me try to answer it and get my my hands around it um i would say if you if if i would have interrupted the first moment you started talking i would say i would clarify that my belief that libertarian government is the best because it allows me to maximize my Christianity, I believe that for both um, idealist and consequential reasons. Okay. I don't... I will not argue with people who say, with liberals who say to me, if we got rid of... Medicaid, there would be people who are sick 
in the streets or in their homes, and there would be homeless people even more. If we got rid of Medicaid, there would be people suffering because, they, they would go on to say, people will not step up and start mercy hospitals that are privately funded and all that. That is a possibility, and I won't argue that that's not a possibility because it absolutely is. Um, it's also not certain necessarily. I mean, it's that's neither one of the, certain. One of the challenges of right. consequential arguments is that we always assert a certainty to them. It is a hypothesis yeah. that if we did not have safety nets, people would be suffering. Mm-hmm. So, Cole Bennett, how can you shame on you? Right, right. And I, I won't argue that that's not a possibility. What I will argue is. It is the church's job to address suffering people, mm-hmm. and when the government tries to stand in that place, there are two objections a libertarian has. First of all, it is necessarily going to be less efficient, and I think we could all look at the VA hospital for an example of that. Okay, but it, you've already— Hold on. Okay. And then you can come back. Okay. It is necessarily going to be less efficient. And even if it were more efficient, it still violates the liberty of people whose real property gets taken from them in order for the government to do it. Okay. So, so, so part that's A one, was consequential. That's right. Part B is values driven. That's right. Yeah. And I have plenty to say about why the libertarian way is better consequentially. But we're, we're dealing largely in hypotheses, although we can all point to things on both sides that we think are analogous to the ideas we have that would show. See how this would work, see how this would work, and we can all point. But the fact is, um, in order for the government to have safety nets, they must come to people who produce in the market and say... It is right and proper and good for me to take part of your real property, whether you agree with it or not, and whether you're giving privately to other efforts or not, by penalty of jail, what you have is ours to this degree. Um, And I want to – let's set that to the side just for a second. And let's take an aside and talk a little bit about – you know, I think we're making some broad assumptions about – whether people understand what we mean about consequences. Yeah, go ahead. Right. So, um, you know, you could make an argument that well, my wife and I are watching Man in the High Castle right now. It's so, so interesting. But one of the one of the storylines that runs through this series, this is a, a story that imagines what happens if we lost World War Two mm-hmm. to the Jap- to the Japanese and to the to the to Germany. And one of the storylines that runs through is this idea that um, the one of the character's sons, he's a he's a high-ranking official in the Nazi party, his son has a congenital disability. That they just discovered that he has a, a medical issue. And as the story unfolds, that son needs to be euthanized for the sake of the gene pool, right? I mean, this is this was something that was a foundation of Aryan thought. <laughs> That's right. Right. And so now this high ranking official's son is, um, well, the high ranking official is up against kind of a, a moral dilemma uh, because he believes 
he has always believed that it is right and proper uh, to ensure the, the, the good of the gene pool over the experience of the individual. But now it's too high a price to pay because it's his own son. And as I don't think anybody listening to this podcast would ever imagine that having a clean gene pool, first of all, clean as a, as a objective qualified term, term right? right? But having a clean gene pool means that we get to do whatever we want to the individual or that a person should die. That whole argument is a consequential argument. Mm-hmm. It's built upon this idea that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Which, yes, and consequentialism is a synonym to ontological is a synonym to utilitarian. Or, yeah, utilitarian fits in that category, mm-hmm. right? Or what is best for, you know, might makes right is another uh, ontological. So um, one of the, I think one of the fair criticisms of uh, the ethic of the Reich was that it was oftentimes built entirely around these these um, outcome oriented ethics. That you know, if I win, then uh, that means I was stronger than you, and the stronger survive. So that's good, right? Mm. It, the good is the is defined by the outcome, right? Um, and so when uh, you say, "I believe that." Um, this affords me the opportunity to, that sounds to me like an outcome argument, not a Nazi argument. <laughs> it right. sounds like an outcome <laughs> argument that I know you to generally reject when that's the only thing I, that you hear. Right. Yeah. But I, I, I will say uh, in your defense before I, before I go on to part B, I keep, I keep hinting at this and maybe one day we have to unpack it, but I think it's possible to even define liberty through the lens of a virtue, not just through a principle. Well, a virtue that belongs to, I guess, a law, a legal framework. Yeah, or even a virtue that underpins ethical decision-making. By people. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, in, in response to what you just said, a libertarian system would permit, to me, that's not so much consequential as saying libertarian frameworks reduce the amount of government intrusion into your life so that you can live according to your own decisions more fully. To me, that's not the same thing as saying it's the most good for the most number of people, the greatest number of people. No, no, I don't mean it's utilitarian. I mean it's outcome-focused. So utilitarian is one kind of outcome focus. And I don't know that it is entirely outcome focused. That's yeah. the way I hear it, but I don't know that it is. Well, okay. To yeah. me, all right. It, to me, it is an ideal rather than. Yeah. Uh, it's an ideal to I say this type of government embraces liberty, and so even if something has an outcome we don't like, if it is liberty based, so be it. This is the thing I. This is the thing I think the listener needed to hear from you is because I think you believe this that if. If having liberty means that the church now needs to step up because there are more people without health care, then so be it. We mm-hmm. still have to have liberty. And you are willing and, in fact, eager as a member of the way to then step in and start dealing with whatever consequences come from, uh, from this system of liberty. And so you accept the consequences, not only if they are good, but if they are bad. That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely true. Which, to me, starts to move it on the other side of something like value. Okay, are you ready for Part B? Well, let me just add, Scott, that I think there are several—I uh, I appreciate you bringing up this, this 
needed separation because I think I think things often get conflated by my side of libertarians because so many things that we think are better ideas because they promote liberty also we feel would be better from a consequential standpoint. So and it's oftentimes used in persuasive terms, that's right? right. R- right. That's how we oftentimes persuade people. In the that's right. Story. And a primary example I can think of immediately is our education system uh, because right now – in the United States, public education is varies widely in success, and what we are requiring currently by law is not that young people learn, but that young people attend. And I know enough public school teachers to know that so many of their students are not learning, they are merely attending, and it's all the teachers can do to get them to just bear with them while they teach the, the students who want to learn. And so libertari- I've, libertarians I've spoken with have often said, you know, what causes a child to learn is a combination of good teachers and a home situation that promotes learning. So if I am a person, and I did go to public school, I went to public school for 12 years, but I had parents whose hand was on my shoulder saying, let me see your homework that you've completed. Mm -hmm. And my public school wasn't very good, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. but it was one that my parents backed up the learning. So I did more than merely attend, but the law did not care if I did more than attend. And so you'll hear libertarians say, you know, what we need is to get rid of the public education system and have private schools, uh, private schooling, but we we would be satisfied in the short term with a voucher system that still permitted even very poor students to have an education, but they get to choose where to go. And people get really upset with that suggestion many times when I talk and they start talking about that would create schools that are that shut out this group and shut out that group. And I try to explain that the market would rise up and say, give us all the kids you have who are poor behavior. We'll take them and we will gladly teach them. But they're not interested in those discussions many times because they don't believe the outcomes would happen. And the whole conversation didn't start because of outcomes, but it started because of, I don't think it's right to force people to pay for many of the public goods we have to pay for when um, we should be... we should decide whether we do that ourselves or not. So much of this discussion ends up being um, about the the differences between persuasion and ethics. Do you know about John McNamara? It was the... Vietnam, right? Yeah, Secretary of Defense in Vietnam. <laughs> his history up preceding his service in that capacity was as a... Um, he was a big data guy. And what they did was try to make decisions based upon outcomes and gamify, you know, outcomes. Yeah. Right, and try to understand what the best outcomes are. Well, that makes sense to some degree in the American worldview uh, where we persuade one another by outcomes. That's what every TV commercial is playing on your sense, not only, but is oftentimes playing on your sense of outcome. You need to buy this product because you will be happier, right? Or you need to um, you need to purchase this because you will be more popular. This is what everybody else is doing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, or it, and much of our political discussion tends to be focused upon persuading others based upon um, 
agreed upon outcomes that uh, we agree that those outcomes are good, right? And so what happens is we sometimes uh, turn persuasion into a discussion of oughts and uh, and goods, and discussion about ethics and how we make decisions, as though uh, those are baked in. And I think you, of all people that I know, I hope I'm in this category, but you of all people I know are not necessarily uh, thrilled with people who simply say, this will be better than another option. Um, you'll, you'll ask, what's the principle behind it? And is the principle better, right? That's, an, that's a values question, not an outcomes question. Right. I don't know how much further to go with that. I, I mean... When we were growing up, we were my cousin and I were lost in the woods. Have I ever told you this story? We were lost in the woods, and we had a canteen. It was in the winter, a big snowstorm. Oh, I haven't heard this. I one. lived in the mountains, you know. And, yes. Um, we were lost in the woods. A big snowstorm came up, and we didn't have gloves on. And so David decided it would be genius to pour water on his hands because his hands felt a little bit warmer in the moment, right? <laughs> right. Uh, but as you can imagine, it's getting below freezing, and also. Uh, while they feel better while he pours water on them, they don't feel better, and it becomes increasingly <laughs> worse, right? Right. And he had to, you know, he it was minor, but he had minor frostbite by the time we got where time we found our way back. And um, I think that's oftentimes the the challenge of outcomes. You know, I'm going to measure this by the by the way things happen. It might be good in the short term. It might not be good in the long term. What's wise in terms of negotiating the difference between the two and, you know, how long are you going to be lost in the woods? There are all kinds of variables that make that that weigh into whether that's a good, whether the outcomes are good or not good. And um, and that can be very frustrating on its face, but it's also frustrating to people who say, wait, 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 uh, regardless of whether things work out for me individually there is a principle and this principle, this value should be uh, honored and followed um, for its own sake. Yes, and it's those arguments are far less challenged whenever they are in the popular discourse. That's right. Than when they are in the unpopular. That's right. That's you right. Know, so. Yeah, it's all, everybody's happy to be, you know, yay America, we're all patriotic until the draft. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, so here's part B. All right. I keep recoiling every time you say it. I'm going to tell you why. Okay. It sounds to me like you are making an argument that if Jesus had his preference, he would want for you to operate in freedom as opposed to operating under oppression because he has a will for you has a desire that you do certain things, and you can do those certain things better in a free society. And I really want to criticize that warrant. Okay. Um, when I read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, "If you know, if uh, if someone asks you to give him his, give him your cloak, give him your coat as well. If someone asks you to go one mile, go with him too." And in the context of that. Demand. That demand is made uh, about soldiers. In fact, it's in the context of a law that uh, the Roman Empire, could, a soldier could ask, you know, call, I, I need you to carry my stuff for me. And you, you must, you would be conscripted for a period of one mile. And then once, once you've met that one mile marker, 
you're done, but I could conscript the next person to carry my stuff. And so I could go through life with other people carrying my stuff, and you are conscripted by law uh, to do that work. What a perfect opportunity. I'm just going to put this out there. What a perfect opportunity for Jesus to say, you know what we need? What we need are people to um, establish a state where you are unencumbered to love the poor, free from the state, free from the influence what we really need here is a different system. And that's not what Jesus said. He said, walk that extra mile, right? And so there is no problem flourishing. In the context that Jesus describes, there is no conflict for Jesus's disciples in flourishing. In fact, they will flourish by submission, not merely through the context of liberty. I've talked a lot here, so go ahead and start reacting. Yeah, okay. I, I do have some a couple of reactions that come to mind. I am thrilled to hear you say that Jesus had every opportunity to tell us to build a system and didn't. And I would say yeah, to yeah, yeah, every yeah. Christian progressive, that. yeah, that's right. do not ever say to me, we must take care of the sick by voting for Obamacare or anything else right. that's coming along the pike. Scott and I are recording this during the uh, middle of the debates uh, in 2019 that are coming up, and people are saying this plan for Medicare and this plan for Obamacare, and let's bring it back and let's construct it. And so much of their language along the way has been Christianized, I would right. argue, and it has been adopted by Christians I know around me who say, hey, libertarian, how dare you not embrace these laws because Christ told us to take care of the sick. So nothing makes me happier right now than you're saying Jesus did not tell us to set up a system. But let's and be clear, ma- I don't make those arguments. I don't make the argument that Jesus wants us to have health care. No, you. that's okay. right. You okay. don't. You don't. Everyone, listen, Scott does not make those arguments. But I want all the people listening to know to hear the fact that Jesus did not tell us to set up a system. I agree with that 100%. Part B, Mm -hmm. I don't think that a system of leave me alone is much of a system. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's brilliant. I get it. I get it. And I think on to your point about Jesus telling his disciples not to fight that soldier and to try to change that soldier's mind, but just go with him. Okay, I can I can see there and other places where Jesus' language seems to say to me, hey, you're going to be living in the state that sometimes oppresses you. That's not the point. And I agree with you, Scott, that okay. under severe oppression, even in communist Russia, I can still be a full Christian who is pleasing to God in that context, uh, who's pleasing to God. I think in a country that allows me to vote— on the level of interference that I should try to vote for the least amount of interference from the government so I can do the most as a Christian. Not all countries permit me to do that. And if I were a Christian in one of those countries, I could still be a full Christian. Can can I ask a question about that before you go? You sure may. Okay. So am I I over-interpreting this when you say something, if if, if I understand it this way, I want the liberty— because I feel like I can be more effective in terms of, I don't mean this, I don't mean this as criticism, but in terms of the outcomes, I can do more. 
give me my money so I can do more for people instead of the government. Not just my funding. money, but the freedom to do it. Um, you know, I have to fill out all kinds of permitting and things if I want to start yeah. a, a nonprofit. The government has to stamp their approval on it, and and so it is both less effective and B, it's unnecessary in my view. Good. Okay. 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 And I will go a step further. Jesus' lack of directive to tell me to fight the soldier who makes me go one mile, an extra mile, is the reason I'm sitting here having a podcast conversation with you and not sitting in a jail cell for failing to pay my taxes because of the recension of the Mexico City policy, which I will talk about for 30 seconds. Okay, go ahead. The Mexico City policy is a an executive order that was signed years ago that prevents my tax money from going as foreign aid to family planning clinics in other countries that have abortions. And so Obama and Clinton before him, their first week in office signed a recension of the Mexico City policy. And the recension of that policy means that my tax money taken from me by penalty of jail goes into foreign aid packages that go to family planning clinics in other countries who perform abortions. I had rather uh, sometimes I, I thought for a long time, should I not pay taxes and go to jail? I still struggle with that yeah. from an idealist yeah. perspective. Yeah, Sometimes I, I, I think that. I should be in jail. And when people come and interview me, like I know they would, they would line up 2020 and Dateline and all Stone Phillips out there. This is what Thoreau did. I mean, this was Thoreau's. This is what right? Thoreau did. And and that's right. And and um, a previous guest on our show, Dan McGregor, and I have talked about, should we go to jail because we don't want to pay for abortions with mm. our tax money? But let's not. And so Jesus' directive to the to his disciples when the government abuses you, just just try to deal with it and ignore it is kind of the message I'm getting. Like, That's fascinating. Who pays the tax? Jesus is like, get a coin and look at the front. And, and I've heard sermons to this effect. Don't feel like you are responsible for what the government spends your money that it took from you by force on. Do what you can and then... Do what you can and support... Um, voluntarily, people who are doing things you have vetted to make mm-hmm. sure they're doing it the way you think they should. That is a brilliant argument. <laughs> Thank you. I understand how much longer that takes than this just gives me the best, this gives me the freedom to exercise my Christianity. But but that is that makes a great deal of sense to me. I have questions for you. Hit me. Is it time? It's time. <laughs> okay. And... You may be speaking for yourself, or you may be speaking for progressives. I can that, only speak for myself. Well, but you might shed some light okay. if you've heard other people okay. like, you know. Yeah. Um, I've heard, especially in the rhetoric of the last year, uh, when progressives are jockeying for presidential candidacy, um, but I've also heard it all my life from progressives in general, which is this. It is morally inappropriate for people to be millionaires and billionaires. So the tax program I am putting forth, says the progressive, and the tax program that my candidate is putting forth, says the Christian to me sometimes, helps people who need it and shows love to people who are hurting, and it's only at the expense 
of millionaires and billionaires and the and quote the rich. So it is therefore justified on its face. And my question to you, Scott, is what about shouldn't policy show love, quote unquote? Where is the love for people who take risks in the market to satisfy a need, who are not under indictment for um, false advertising or for environmental harm or whatever it is you want to say? They're just providing something to the market and are wildly successful. Why are they the subject of derision? Why should they be? Why is it appropriate for them to be? So is your question more focused on why aren't I loving the rich or asking me to justify soaking the rich? It is asking you to shed light on a mindset that the rich deserve to be plundered or soaked. From the Christian point of view or from the socialist point of view? From the Christian progressive okay. point of view that I continue to hear from people I, who are— I think that there are some presumptions that exist that are largely informed by capitalism, that um, if you are required to give any of your property over to the people, that that is an act of aggression. That is a capitalist point of view. It is not a socialist point of view. So it starts from the supposition that we're all agreeing on what the goods are. But I think if you read the New Testament, there is no argument to be made that money is a good. The only argument that can be made from the New Testament is that money is an evil. Why does Jesus say that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? He doesn't just say that because um, uh, rich people are have more temptations than the poor. He's making some claim about the nature of capital and its weight on one's um, participation in the kingdom. I don't think he's making an argument every rich person needs to be fleeced. But I think what he's saying to his disciples is let's not imagine that that is value in and of itself. At least you have to say that there is no good in being wealthy. I would it only, is potentially bad. I would only inject right here that people who are rich in Jesus' day did not get rich the same way people in America in 2019 get rich. That's a totally different conversation, but I think that's a very valid conversation. Yeah, that, that you could look at that as an understanding of, and this is what you see in James— when James describes the condition of the wealthy and the poor, and he says that, you know, the workers' uh, unpaid wages are screaming out against the wealthy, I mean, even from a pure classical liberal point of view, that is an act of, that's a crime, right? Yes. If you, ha- if you contract to pay a worker X amount of dollars to bring in the, the harvest and you don't pay them, that is a crime. You have failed to, to live up to your contract. And enforcement of contracts is one of the few things in the libertarian government that is permitted to be enforced by the government. Yeah. Um, So that's part A. (laughs) Um, Listen, I think you really struggle. And this is my – if there's anybody I struggle to have love for, it's tele-evangelists who make it seem like it's God's deepest desire to make sure you have money. Mm Mm-hmm. 
they are referencing the same um, misunderstanding um, that I think exists in a much less dangerous and and, and more acceptable uh, form in your question, which is that money is good. I don't think the New Testament suggests that money is good. There is nothing in the New Testament that suggests money is good. I said nothing. You could make the argument that Paul sees money as a good when he wants to collect some from the churches to take back to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. I can care for the sick and for the widows and the orphans a lot more if I have money than if I can't, if I don't. Well, that would be nice if Jesus said something like that, but he didn't. Neither did Paul. It's not in the text is my point. What you have in the text are warnings against it, not celebrations of it. Now, there are people in the New Testament, there are individuals who act in very noble ways with their money, and I want to be very careful in having this conversation that I don't think you can paint with a broad brush a group of people who have money. I have, as a as a member of several different churches, seen wealthy people who are way more generous. You don't have to have a lot of money to be greedy. You can have no money and be greedy. Right? And I've seen very generous people who understand the wealth that they have in their accounts as, a, um, a, as nothing more than God's, um, God's, it's God's money and they are helping him figure out where it goes. Right? That, so I don't think you can say this is how rich people are. And I don't think Jesus is saying that. But I do think you have to be very careful to note that money is not a good in the New Testament. It's not a good. If it's anything, it's a potential bad. I'll just repeat what you said a moment ago. Paul collected money from congregations to do church work. Yes. All right. So it stands to reason if I'm a Christian and I have success in the marketplace. And do you see his argument is you owe this. You must do this. To the church. Yes. And I do feel as a Christian, I must be responsible with my money and do things that are good to enact pure religion, yeah. the Jamesian pure religion. I have that responsibility to God. I do not and should not have that responsibility to the government. And the less they No, no, inter- no. Okay, but that's a different conversation. No, no, it's really not. Because the less the government interferes to make me pay for all the things that it makes me pay for because people sit in a room and decide that it's what I should be paid for, then the more money I have to do what I feel is my responsibility to God. Now, I know God's going to get His work done, whether I put money in the plate or not. I, I, no, I I, re, I I don't I don't accept that at all. Okay. Because here's the thing: is if Jesus says, when the when the when the soldier asks you to walk with him one mile, I could really do something with that time of the other mile if I would just have the liberty to do it. I could do some other things, like I could actually take care of poor people mm-hmm. instead of giving that extra mile to the to the soldier. If somebody asks for me my cloak and then they wanted to, and I've given my coat also, I could have given that to the poor. Um, and this is actually an argument that the disciples make at a certain point when one of the women comes and pours perfume all over Jesus's feet, mm-hmm. and and say, and they say that could have been given to the poor. That's how um, that's how they understood this as these things have value, and I should be able to exercise their value in ways that glorify God in this way. And um, that's not the that's not the response you get from Jesus in any of those episodes. I don't think he has any concern about your efficiency. In that case, I'm going to go buy a BMW and a Porsche and go on expensive vacations and wear lots of rings because I guess it doesn't matter. That's not it. I mean, that's, then, then you'll die like Ananias and Sapphira. Well, 
Well, either it matters or it doesn't. Either how I spend my money matters or it doesn't. And given a nation where I can vote and try to persuade people in the marketplace to do the same for a system that leaves me alone. I don't think it, I don't think it, I don't think it matters in the way that you're couching it. It's not, there's not a rule here. There's a virtue in the center of this. The, the virtue is a virtue of selflessness. It's agape. So I, any of the discussion where we're talking about, well, I could do this if you didn't, if you didn't take, I, it misses what Jesus is asking of his disciples which is you serve regardless of your consequence. You give regardless of what you have. Okay, uh, let me stop. I think we're in the weeds of something I didn't mean to go into. I still feel very strongly the way I do about this, but we, th- we are now in— We haven't gotten to the other part We yet. are now into the consequential. Yes. And I want to back up. Yes, good. And say what the warrant that people use is— well, rich people don't deserve to ha- to keep the successes they generate. And in a system where we are being told, where is your heart for the sick? Where is your heart for uh, the immigrants? Where is your heart for these things, says the progressive and the progressive Christian? My question is, where's your heart for rich people who have ostensibly done nothing wrong but succeed. Um, so that's so to me, I'm, that not is gonna, an, I'm not going to defend it. That's an idealist yeah, question. You've never, heard, a, you've never heard me say I've that. I've never heard you say that. And I don't think I can defend it in other people. There's a reason why you've never heard me say it. Uh, I, now, I, I wanted the part A was I want to make it clear that I don't think that having money is a virtue. Right? I think it's, the op- I think it's potentially the opposite. It's dangerous. It's very dangerous. But it's not necessarily. Okay. It's super dangerous. Right. It's one of the things Jesus is warning against, so I'm just saying. Okay? But having said that, okay. how do you have love? So the, the idea that if you tax the wealthy or you have a progressive tax system where the wealthy get taxed more than – if you're asking how is that loving, I have some concerns about your definition of what love is because keeping people in the green is not loving. Making sure I don't take any of your money is not necessarily an act of love. Having said that, I have no interest whatsoever in caricaturizing or in even uh, uh, asserting a a view that money that people who own money or who have money have it by ill gotten by ill gotten gain, or that they deserve to be fleeced. As a Christian, you don't believe that. As a socialist, you do. Well, as a socialist, no, not as a socialist. I don't think they deserve to be fleeced. I think that they have, um, they have prospered within the context of shared resources, and that shared resources is defined pretty broadly for me. And also, they exist within a social contract, but that's that has nothing to do with Jesus. That's why I way back when we said Jesus wants your cash, I don't think that works. And I don't think it's okay for Christians to say rich people are dot, dot, dot. If any Christian ever says that, or if you say liberals are, or conservatives are, or libertarians are, and you say dot, 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 you have failed, I think, uh, um, if the dot, dot, dot is followed by something derisive, you have failed to engage in the primary function of Christianity, which is, as I mentioned last time, to love, have a God for the world. This means that at some point I've got to gin up, if it's a struggle for me, 
too bad. I got to gin up agape for the billionaire. I'm not interested in defending Bernie Sanders for deriding the billionaires. Or Elizabeth Warren. Any of them. Okay. Any of them. Nor am I going to say, as I have heard some Christians say, well, God has blessed them with a lot of money. <laughs> right? Right. No, I've heard, I heard right. a sermon recently where somebody s- said, well, the reason we should follow Donald Trump is because God has blessed him with a great deal. Hmm. So clearly God is blessing him, so we should follow him blindly. I don't understand that That's at all. as stupid uh-huh. as somebody else saying, well, if they're rich, then it's because they are, they're evil. And so we sh- you know, we, they're, they become objects of our acts of hate, whatever those acts of hate are. Well, I, you're reminding me, I actually had a conversation years ago with a Christian progressive who said, anyone who amasses wealth has necessarily stepped on, lied to, or manipulated wrongly the people on the way there. They have necessarily done that. It is not possible to gain wealth unless you have done that. And I reject that out of That's a Marxist argument. That yeah. doesn't even make sense to me as I, a Marxist. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, I think we've, I think we've established that, um, that – no, I think there is a socialist argument for the, accru- the accrual of wealth. Can we talk about that for a second? No, knowing that you are not speaking as a Christian, but as a socialist, a secular socialist. Or is that, a, is that for another Geraldo? <laughs> it may be for another Geraldo, but let's, let's go ahead and start it. Well, I, I'm struck by the rhetoric I hear um, from the Democratic debates. Everyone with both hands up in the air say, we must have the common good. We must unify and bring together and make sure that no one is left behind and make sure that no one does without and make sure this and that. And we're going to do this because of those jerks, the millionaires and billionaires. And they don't say that word, but they they say other things. And I'm thinking, what have they done other than succeed? And why does that qualify them for derision? So speak as a socialist, not necessarily. Yeah, well, you're asking me to, A, defend the rhetoric of someone else who's trying to persuade people to vote for them. I I can't – there is no virtue there for me to really deal with. I I only – the thing of it is I've never voted for somebody who agrees with me because I don't know (laughs) of somebody who agrees with me. Noam Chomsky wants to run. I might might have the chance, but I don't think he has power. Well, then tell me where you would – tell me what Scott Self believes, the, the socialist part of you, and maybe about the social contract or something. That's it. I, I mean I do think that you uh, are drawing from resources whenever you decide, whenever you engage in, in um, market activity. You are drawing from resources that fundamentally are limited and shared by humanity. Um, it all boils down to uh, – a point of view that there is at the core of any market a scarcity of resources. And I think the flip side of that for many libertarians is they believe in uh, an abundance of resource. So it's a question of abundance versus scarcity. If you choose take, – take for example <laughs> Obama got nailed for this and probably appropriately so during the 2012 election – when he was complaining about dot commers and and kind of the new economy of the internet economy uh, built upon the backs of um, an internet that they did not design, the government designed it, right? And so he said something in the order of they didn't build that, 
And that turned into a whole thing that, that definitely got taken out of context, but he definitely set up the, set up the, he queued him up. But I think, and I don't think Obama is a good representation of socialist, no matter what anybody says, he's not a very good socialist, but uh, a socialist would say, yeah, these kinds of things happen through social agreements and they're built upon social agreements fundamentally. And then once they're built on social agreements, somebody begins to capitalize on that. That is perfectly fine and good. It's just that we have some stake in the way that that capital is developed. Um, you know, if you think about uh, Bill Gates spent, if, if you read Malcolm Gladwell's version of this, that he spent something like 100,000 hours playing with computers at the school, right? There is a context in which he is building this base upon which something emerges, and he deserves to be wealthy on the other side of it. A socialist is not concerned about that. I'm not a communist. I don't think everybody gets the same amount. But that was built in to some degree on the context of public education. And so that, that he becomes very wealthy. Well, you're laughing at me. Yeah, that's, that is a f- fascinating... I think that is such a bad argument, my friend. Well, it's it if it's absurd, it's no more absurd than the idea that somebody just has a brilliant idea and they do everything all by themselves. It never happens that way either. Let me see if I can address it while giving you props. I do when you say resources are scant. Uh-huh. Well, clean air and clean water have um, finite amounts, and I agree with you there. Clean water and clean air there's have minim- finite the, amounts. There's finite amount of oil, of minerals. Yeah, of- we haven't even we haven't even tapped it. And I say that not as yeah. someone okay. who's hoping, but but I my stepfather worked for Exxon, and when he retired uh, a few twenty something years ago, he said there are parts of Saudi Arabia that they're not even pumping; it's still coming out of the ground of its own pressure, and. But anyway, we do have finite – we do have scarce resources, but what, what libertarians would say is that our gross national product is infinite. So when I open a better pizza restaurant than yours and you go out of business, you don't go to the middle of the street and die. Either you move and open an, your own pizza shop or you change industries and open something. There's, there is an infinite amount of GDP. So there's no ceiling on growth. There's no ceiling on growth. With exception to things that involve clean air and water and minerals or whatever. Now, as to your second point, I, I've had many people make the argument you're making to me, Scott, which is why I've thought about it so much. And I'm thinking of a certain friend of mine who once said to me, uh, if you have some great idea in the market and become unbelievably wealthy, you had janitors who mopped the floor at your school, you had school teachers, you had cab drivers. You had people who made your clothing and your socks and worked at Walmart and sold them to you. They deserve, and I said, no. Wait, wait, wait. Can I guess what your answer was? Yes. They got paid for their service. Via individual voluntary agreement, they got paid. That cab driver said, yes, I will take you from here to there for this much money. The janitor said, I will accept that wage to mop this floor. It is voluntary individual agreements that drive the economy and that is what is most important and if that teacher or janitor or cab driver were not satisfied 
with that wage, then they would have said, no, I'm not going to do it. And they have that prerogative, but they did. And I have the prerogative to say, I'm going to pursue this idea at the expense of other ideas. And when it blossoms and makes a billion dollars, that is my property. Hey, how you like? I channeled my inner Colonel Colt Bennett accurately. (laughs) You did. You really did. I'm proud of you.